0: Welcome to the sermon cast from King Road Church. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. If you'd like to pray with someone, speak with one of our pastors, or if you're looking for more resources, please go to kingroad.ca, scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the Reach Out fillable. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message.
1: to go with them to Tarshish away from the Lord and the Lord's presence. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah, On us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. To this point, the word of the Lord.
0: Turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Spending most of our time in verses 4 through 16. We'll get to 17 actually next week, but 4 through 16 this morning. A little background on the book of Jonah uh, and actually on who Jonah is. So Jonah, it was a prophet who lived and served under King Jeroboam II. King Jeroboam II, uh, if you go back and, and look in the Old Testament through the books of uh, 1 and 2 Kings, you'll come across his name in about 2 Kings, starting in chapter 14. And you you hear that name, though, and you're like, well, why is this significant? Well, King Jeroboam II was considered one of the worst kings in Israel. You go through... Um, the the history of israel and the the split of the kingdom of israel into two the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom so this happened uh, a couple hundred years before the time of jonah so king jeroboam uh the, the northern kingdom has already been kind of its own thing for for a while already and king jeroboam now is a king who has come up with from within the ranks of their monarchy and he is one of the worst kings in the history of Israel. So here is what the author of 2 Kings writes about him. He says in 2 Kings 14 verses 23 to 24, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. So Judah is the southern kingdom. So in the, in his reign during, or during his reign in the southern kingdom, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was the king of Israel. And he began to reign in Samaria and he reigned for 41 years and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat which he made Israel to sin so Jeroboam son of Nebat was the king of Israel's or was Israel's first king so the northern kingdom's first king and now comes Jeroboam the second he's got the same name and he's just as wicked So in other words, Jeroboam II was as bad as kings got. But God was gracious to Israel. Even under wicked King Jeroboam II, they were able to expand their borders during his reign. And this was actually prophesied that this would happen to Jeroboam II. And the prophet is somebody we know. He, uh, verses 25 and 26, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath, Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So picture the scene, okay? Transport yourself back the 3,000 years or whatever it is to when this is taking place. And imagine this, okay? So you've got the kingdom of Israel, which is actually having some success at the time. And then you've got the kingdom of Syria, which is or Syria is to the north, Assyria is to the northeast. Okay, so modern-day Iraq is where this is. And because of all the political and military battles, these two nations absolutely hate each other. And both of them have some success. Assyria, much greater success overall, but Israel at this point having some pretty good success going in and taking over parts of Syria, taking over Damascus. So they see each other as a threat. And so God comes to Jonah and says, go to Nineveh. And yet Jonah is also an advisor to the king. Eh, this doesn't sit so well, right? Politically, this does not look like a good move. You're the advisor to the king, and you're supposed to go into the middle of Nineveh and preach to them about the God of Israel? So he runs away. Why does he run away? Because he would rather die than see God bring compassion on their enemies in Assyria. But as we see in this text, neither Jonah, nor you or I for that matter, can run away from God's sovereign plan. So the big idea for the sermon God receives glory in salvation through judgment, not religion. God receives glory in salvation through judgment, not religion. And I apologize, you will not be having slides today. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, open them up. You should be bringing them along with you anyway. Okay, two points for the sermon. When you're in God's crosshairs, this is the first one, when you're in God's crosshairs, fear is the right response. And the second, when you know the right answer, no other answer will do. So the first point, when you're in God's crosshairs, fear is the right response. So like I said, John or Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. Um which approximately distance-wise is like going from here to Manitoba. Okay, So if you're talking like kilometers or flight time, drive time, whatever, it's about the same from here to Manitoba. And and it's in the eastern direction, just like Manitoba is from us. But instead, Jonah flees to the opposite direction. And I know you covered some of this last week, but in order to have the context, we got to kind of get back into it a bit. So Jonah flees in the opposite direction, hops on a boat to Tarshish. And Tarshish, yes, opposite direction, but much farther even. So if if um, Nineveh is a two-hour flight, we'll use some of today's kind of travel and language, two-hour flight to Nineveh from Israel, Tarshish is a five-hour flight. And it's at the absolute end of the Mediterranean world. So... Uh, And in their day, when they looked at where they knew land went, man, you got to Tarshish, and you looked east, or you looked west, and there was nothing but water. You'd send ships out for days, and they'd come back and go, there's nothing out there. It's the end of the world out there. And that's what the author is trying to get us to see, is that Jonah isn't following God's call to Nineveh. Instead, he's willing to go as far as humanly possible, all the way to the end of the world. get away from this call. And so, yes, he's going as far away as possible. And in verses three through five, the author writes that Jonah went down. So he uses this repeated phrase numerous four times in these verses, that he goes down. So he went down to Joppa. Then he went down into the ship. Then he went down into the inner part of the ship. And there he laid down. So not only distance-wise, but down. Because when you go... So in Israel, if you're going to worship the Lord, you're going up. Israel's on top of a hill, or, the, or Jerusalem's on top of a hill, and then in Jerusalem, the temple's on top of a hill. So when you're going to worship the Lord, when you're following the Lord, you're going up, but Jonah, he's going down. As far away from God as he can. In the Hebrew, the term, um, the presence of the Lord, is literally the face of Yahweh, So he's running from God's face. God has set his face towards Jonah to say, Jonah, you're the guy. You're going to Nineveh. And Jonah's trying to escape it. But Jonah finds out that if God's pursuing you, there's no way out of it. So God hurls a storm right at him. And that's the sense you should get as you read verse 4. So verse 4 again, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. The language here used, like, even the ship is obeying God, right? The ship is threatening to break up. It's like a personification of life within the ship, willing to break up because of this great storm and under the pressure in the presence of the Lord. And this storm isn't... Um, it isn't just a general storm that's come upon the area. The the way that the author has written this, it is like a direct hit. It's like God has pulled out his gun, his storm gun, and in his crosshairs, he's got that boat, and God doesn't miss. And the terror that the sailors feel proves that this was some kind of a freak storm. These are These are not men who aren't used to the storms that come upon their sea. They know what the storms can be like. And yet here they are terrified. So continuing, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So it's like they expected this clear blue day, right? They're sailing along and everything's beautiful. Look at the beautiful Sunrise and sunset, and oh, and look at the dolphins swimming, and this is just wonderful. Yo ho ho, and a bottle of rum. But boom, storm, and they're terrified. Except for Jonah. And they're all getting religious in this moment because of the fear that comes upon them. So they're all crying out to their different gods, right? Like, Oh, Poseidon, what did we do to offend you? Great God of the sea. Quit tossing the waves like this. What can we do to appease you? Have mercy on us. Or, Oh, great Baal, God of the storms. Don't, don't keep sending this storm upon us. What have we done? They're crying out to these gods of theirs to try to get mercy. But Jonah, he's asleep. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Jonah, he's knocked out. Like, unresponsive. None of this. All of this that's going around them isn't bothering him. He's just fast asleep like he's been under general anesthesia. No response. The, the Greek Old Testament literally translate this. He, when the captain comes to him, he doesn't say, oh, sleeper. He says, you who snores, what are you doing? Right? So um, if, I don't know if you've ever heard of, um, you know, when somebody snores, it's like they're bragging, right? It's like they're bragging to the people that are beside them, right? Like, listen to this amazing sleep I'm having. Don't you wish you could sleep like I do? And that's the kind of sleep that Jonah is having here under this great storm. But he's in such a deep sleep that it's like he's dead. And so why is he in such a deep sleep? He's so angry with God that he just doesn't care anymore. Anything can happen around him. And he's like, whatever. He would rather die than serve God at this point. Then the captain says to him, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So the same phrase, arise, call out, is the exact same words that God uses when he calls Jonah in verse 1. Arise, go to the city of Nineveh and call out to them. Jonah for sure recognized this. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So lots, um, kind of like dice, you, but they were just rocks, kind of flat rocks that have one side painted white, one side painted black. And you would have two. And so they all get out their lots and they cast them on the table or in their lap. And if, if these lots would come up both white, that means you're innocent. You're off the hook, no problem. If they're black and white, well, you got to re-roll. But if it's both black, not looking so good for you. So they go around the circle, right? You can imagine this. They're all like, okay, we got to cast our lots. Boom. Oh, I'm innocent. Next guy, I might have to re-roll. Let's see what happens with you guys, right? Uh, Another innocent guy, another innocent guy. Comes to Jonah. Boom. Black. And he doesn't fight it. He knows he's guilty. He knows why the storm has come upon them. And he says to them in verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Or they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And you see that capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the name of God. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, so they hear this, right? They're like, you're telling us that like, the God of all gods has brought this upon us? So they're exceedingly afraid. They're, they're, they're fearing with great fear. And they say, what is this that you have done? For the man knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. So when they, when they say this to him, I don't know what exclamation point or question mark they have in your, in your Bible. Different translations are different. But when they say to him, what is this that you have done? It's not really a question. It's like they've grabbed him by the face and go, what is this you've done? Do you realize what you've done? You're insane. How dare you run away from God like this? Bringing us along with you? So in this situation you've got Jonah who knows and fears Yahweh and then you have these pagan idol worshipping sailors, right? They they've brought along their little household gods and they're praying to these gods and the god of the deep, the god of the storm, whatever. They're, they're just trying to do whatever they've heard in their lives, whatever they've kind of got through osmosis and through the culture they live in, and that's what they're trying to do to make this happen, to, to get come to safety. But who responds correctly here? Jonah, who knows Yahweh, or the pagan idol-worshiping sailors? Jonah's responding with apathy. Like, he doesn't care. The sailors, if you look at what the sailors say through all of this, you could sum it up with one question How can we be saved? How can we be saved? Their gods, all their hard work, all of their cries, and they probably have little rituals they're trying to do. All of these things are failing them, and they have no idea what to do at this point. So when we think about our lives or our situations that we find ourselves in, don't we often see the, kind of the same thing? When people's lives are hanging in the balance, their fear drives them to ask the question, how can I be saved? When I was in seminary, a former colleague of mine started all of a sudden messaging me. And he and I weren't really close friends when we worked together. We were fine, like no issues between us at all. But all of a sudden, he starts messaging me and asking me how things are in Florida and making USA jokes and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And I'm kind of like, this is is funny. Like, why would he all of a sudden want to reach out to me? And then he's like, do you mind if I give you a call? Sure. So he calls me and lets me know on on the phone that he had recently seen his doctor. And his doctor told him that he believed that he was going to do some tests, but there was a very good chance that he had a very aggressive form of cancer. And so this gentleman is in shock of this and... Now, fearing the results of these tests that are going to come back, what is this going to mean? And so he says to me, listen, I've never been religious, but I kind of think it's time for me to figure this out. So I spent some time talking with him and sending him more messages and telling him about Jesus and telling him what it meant to follow Jesus, to repent of his sins and put his trust in Jesus for his righteousness. And we set a meeting time, because we were going to be coming home for Christmas. And so we set a meeting time. I drove out to meet him. I brought a gift, a gift of a Bible, plus a copy of Tim Keller's Reason for God. And he was very appreciative, and he accepted the gift. And we had a great conversation. And I prayed for him at the end. But during that conversation, he said, you know what? The tests all came back negative. I'm all good. I I, I think I'm good. I, I, you know, thank you for this, but... You know, I don't need to explore it anymore. So here's here's kind of what happens. When people enter these moments where fear is driving them to ask these questions, when all of a sudden the crisis passes and there's nothing to fear immediately, they also let the urgency of the question pass. And they think, ah, mañana. Right? Tomorrow. Another day. Someday. Well, someday might never come. So when we're in those moments, and if if you're looking at your life right now and you're going, you know, I've got to change my evil ways, don't let the urgency of the moment pass. If you're facing something in life and it's making you look at your mortality, don't let this time pass. Someday might never come. Today needs to be the day of salvation. But the way of salvation isn't just religion. And the answer to the sailor's question isn't what they expect. So continuing on, a second point, in verse 12, but the point, when you know the right answer, no other answer will do So verse 12, Jonah answers their question. He says to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So we've already established that Jonah would rather die than have God show compassion to these wicked Ninevites, right? Not that, not that at this point Israel was actually any better. They're just as wicked as the Ninevites, really, morally. But his view is that the Ninevites are wicked, unwilling, or unworthy of being saved, unworthy of any kind of compassion, and he doesn't want, doesn't want that. To happen, So instead, he wants to die, right? He goes on this boat, and he's telling these sailors, deliver me to Davy Jones' locker. Boy, nobody knows what that means. Okay, Davy Jones' locker is a pirate term. You get thrown into the ocean, you die, you go to Davy Jones' locker. It's the place of the dead in the, in the ocean. Okay? There it is. <laughs> but in another sense, so Jonah's saying, yes, like, I don't care, just send me there. But in another sense, in this moment, we actually see Jonah, finally, by God's grace, showing some compassion. You see, he could have in this moment just said, yeah, I don't care that we're, we're going to die. Yeah, I'm going to die. You guys are going with me. Who cares? But instead, he has compassion on these men, and he tells them how they can be saved. And the answer that he gives them is the answer that they need. One specific man needs to be sacrificed for them to be saved. But the sailors don't like the answer. And if you think about it, their next move of trying to row and fight back against the storm totally makes sense, because in their thinking, yes, this God of heaven, this God of all gods is angry with them and angry with Jonah, but also they know Jonah's his prophet, so... We're going to murder the prophet of God? That's probably not going to go well for us either. So let's, if God wants him dead, let's let God do the job. Let's row back to land, drop him off there. God can take care of him. His blood not be on our hands. But they fight and they fight and they row and they row and they can't come up with another plan. Their resistance is futile. So the answer of what they needed, or what yeah, the answer they needed was right in front of them, and they had to accept it. So verse fourteen. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, and notice capitalized L O R D. They know this is Yahweh. They're calling out to Yahweh. Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you so in their prayer they're praying to Yahweh they realize that Yahweh is sovereign over this he's been he's sovereign over this situation he's sovereign over the storm that has come and his answer to the storm is also god's sovereign will and god's plan must be followed They acknowledge his sovereignty, right? You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they follow his plan. The other plans that they try to come up with fail. So they follow God's plan. So we've seen how religious they are, right? They think that they can appease the, the God somehow. This is what they've been raised with. They think that, If, if a God is upset that you can do something, you can yell, uh, you can yell to the Lord, you can cry, you can fall on your face, you can cause harm to yourself, whatever, to try to appease this God, but they realize that's not working with Yahweh. It's the same with us. Religion won't save us. And that's what the sailors thought. They thought religion would save them. That if they worked hard enough, they could alter the situation. They could make the God change his mind. That the God would relent if they did the right thing. They thought they had a better idea than God, honestly. But they didn't. So verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceeding, exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So, what does this tell us? It tells us that God brings salvation through judgment, not religion. God brings salvation through judgment, not religion. So with Jonah, God saved the sailors through judgment on Jonah. No matter what else they tried, they couldn't save themselves, nor could they save Jonah. The only way out of the judgment that was falling on them was to follow God's sovereign plan that had been laid out before them. They knew the answer They had to recognize who the one true and living God is, and then submit to his perfect will, even if it went against what normally would have been their better judgment. And people in our day are no different. Sometimes you tell people about Jesus and um, they're wondering about why you're a Christian, and somebody at work or your neighbor or something, maybe somebody on the street comes to you and they know you're a Christian, and they say, So why are you a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And you tell them about following Jesus and that when we uh we confess our sins, that He forgives us, and that and that He died for us, that He was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And they might come to you and go, well, that doesn't really make any sense. How does another guy dying pay for my sins? And this is kind of a common response. How does the death of somebody else pay for the bad things that I've done? And so they imagine a scale, and instead of believing the truth of Jesus dying for our sins and paying the price for our sins, they imagine a scale. You've seen those ancient scales, right? That are perfectly balanced, and you put something on the right-hand side, and it goes down. And one side weighs more than the other, depending what you're trying to weigh. Where what what is what side weighs more? And so they put their works in these scales. Their bad works on one side, their good works in the other side. And so they try to work up more and more good works, because they're imagining that God's scales are going to tip in the right way if they do enough good things. But that's not the standard that God has. God's standard is perfection. God's standard isn't weighing your good works against your bad or your works against somebody else's works, right? You talk about you talk to somebody about evil, they, they come to you and they talk to you about, well, it's not like I'm Hitler. It's always the comment, right? Hitler is the ultimate of evil. But Hitler's not the standard that we compare against. We compare ourselves against who God is, and God is perfect and holy and righteous and good in everything, in every way. And we fall far short Yet the essence of religion and any works-based religion is that your good works will outweigh your bad. And if your good works outweigh your bad, then you get access to heaven or paradise or whatever eternal blessing there is. But that's not the essence of the gospel. Religion says, the situation for us is bad, but if I work hard enough, I can get out of it. The gospel says... The situation for us is so bad that we need God to get us out of it. Religion says we've dug ourselves a hole, but we can climb out. The gospel says the hole is so deep and vast that we need God to come down into it and pull us out. And some might say, but I worship God regularly. I tithe, I pray, so then God has to save me, right? Like I come to church. It's good enough. No. No, it's not. That's just works-based religion. The Christian doesn't worship God to get something from him. We worship him because he's already done it all for us through Jesus. Religion says worship will lead to our salvation, But the gospel says our salvation will lead to worship. So friends, you know the answer to your situation. Whether you're in this room or you're watching online, you know the answer. The answer is not to just work harder and do better. The answer is submit yourself to Christ. The answer is not, I'm going to compare myself to other people and see that I'm a better person and try to kind of put myself up on a pedestal. That's not the answer. The answer is that Jesus Christ is perfect, and he lived a perfect life for you. Therefore, he is a perfect sacrificial death sacrifice for you, for your sins. And when you put your trust in him, he gives you his righteousness in exchange for your sins. And he gives you eternal life. Then, that leads to worship. And not just on a Sunday morning, not just when you kind of feel good about Jesus, but worship in your whole life Worship in the way you use your phone. Worship in the way you treat others. Men, worship in the way that you treat other women as your sisters, not as objects of lust. Women, worship in the way that you raise your family, not just to get them to make you look good, but to get them to make Jesus look good? God's made it clear. Only through the cross can you be saved. And only through Christ's resurrection do you have the promise of eternal life. And when you know the grace of his salvation, you will worship him. And the Holy Spirit will lead you to worship him with joy. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word, that we can come to your word and see uh, the testimony of the life of Jonah. And, And even though, Lord, he was so rebellious to you, running from you at every turn, Lord, you worked through him and you worked through his situation to bring about your will. So, Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, work in us and help us to see the areas where we need to humble ourselves. Lord, areas that we have of pride, of lust, of greed, self-righteousness. Lord, by your Spirit, lead us to repentance. Lead us to lives of worship. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.